BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If you have never listened to Having Funlessness with Jen Kirkman, what is it? Well, I am comedian Jen Kirkman. I am also an author. I am also a, oh, I'm so many things, a TV writer. But this is where I go to give my opinions on things. This is where I go to keep it real. Is it funny? Sure, sometimes. Is it bits, bits, wacka, wacka jokes, fart noises? No, but. You may have a good time. If you want to check out my comedy, go watch my Netflix specials. Just keep living and I'm going to die alone and I feel fine. But this, this is a conversation, a one-sided conversation. And I've been doing this podcast for about six years now. It used to be called I Seem Fun because the conceit of the show was I'm not as fun as I seem. And now we're calling it having funlessness because it's not just about me. It is a type of person. So anyway, enjoy the show. Oslo, Norway, if you are listening, coming up in a few days, Sunday, October 13th, I am at Chat Noir. You know what? After this whole London debacle, come get tickets at the door. Don't get them in advance if that scares you. Don't buy train tickets. The place seats like 550 people. I'm not going to sell out 550 people. I'm not putting myself down, but that's an insane amount of tickets to sell when you aren't, uh, you know, from there. And it's an English-speaking show, and I realize not everyone goes to see. We, we get it. But, but just know that I'm there on October 13th. And follow my Instagram stories to make sure I'm actually there. And then you can buy a ticket, and it'll be great. But uh, that would be cool. If you have a friend there, let them know. Now, the other date I really want to push is my dysfunctional Christmas show in Los Angeles, December 13th. Friday the 13th doesn't get more dysfunctional than that. This is my favorite show to do of the year. If you are unclear on what this show is, let me tell you. It is for lovers of the holiday season and Scrooges alike. There's ironic and unironic merriment, no forced happiness, fucked up stories, silly sketches, charity, music, and candy. It's the most wonderful show of the year. A portion of the proceeds goes to the LA Food Bank. I will be signing and selling copies of my book after the show. That's makes a great holiday gift. I know we have the amazing Julia Sweeney is booked to do the show and we will have more people to announce. Uh, But I usually try not to announce because it can change on a dime, but just know it's fun. And last year we had a giant sing-along to the song Last Christmas. My friend came and played music and it's, it's a good time, a good time for all. So that's on sale right now. Only 20 bucks at the Melrose Improv main stage, eight o'clock Friday, December 13th. JenKirkman.com, right there on the homepage, all the tickets, or JenKirkman.com slash tour. Go to it, get to it, have fun. And right now, you can go to the website and see the cities that are on sale. Go find them. And I would love to promote uh, San Francisco, Sunday, November 17th. What I need to tell you about this show is that there are 13 tickets left for the fancy seating. That's the more expensive upfront close to me seating. 
And uh, I mean, there's no bad seat in the house, but we will add a second show if the first one sells out, but it has to sell out soon. It can't sell out the night of or the week of. So, and if I do a second show, I may even, well, I can't promise that. I was going to say I might even do different material than I did on the first show, but get your tickets now. JenKirkman.com, click tour, San Francisco, Cobb's Comedy Club, Sunday, November 17th at 7 p.m. There's that. Now, all the other dates are on my website, so go to it. Great. Whoo! Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Hello. I am vamping, as they say, to get my stuff up and ready. I have failed. I have failed. Now, by the time you hear this, things might be different, but I have failed at a few things this week. <laughs> but I'll talk about this week. I failed to get tickets to the Anne Frank house. Had to cancel a gig. Mayhem ensued. I saw my parents in Las Vegas. I have some big sister advice to someone who keeps asking me to get coffee because they have questions about life. And I will give them, I'm going to give you the tough love over the podcast that you probably don't even know I have. I'm going to tell you all how to get into comedy. And we might talk about um, this article of this crazy story, this adopted daughter who basically was Satan and she pretended she was a child, but she really had a form of dwarfism and she was 22 and was trying to murder her adopted parents. And I don't normally like scary stuff, but this story is intriguing. Could I pop that B any harder? And we have a crazy listener email. Now, if you get to the end of the episode and I have not talked about the article about the adopted daughter, there is a giant chance I won't get to it. But I will name it at the end of the episode and say, we'll do that another time. So, but if you guys want to do your homework, you can go to thedailymail.co.uk. You can go anywhere and just Google Indiana mother who adopted six-year-old Ukrainian girl with dwarfism. Just Google that and you'll be well on your way to understanding this story. Now let's begin. As you listen to this, I will be in Amsterdam and I meant to get tickets to the Anne Frank house and I know that they are only released a couple months in advance and I thought I had put it as a reminder in my calendar. Sometimes this weird thing happens in my iPhone. It's once in a while. It's once a year. I put it in and I scroll the wrong day or I don't know what happened, but I never got the reminder from myself. Again, I have to yell at my assistant who is also myself. And so I went to buy the Anne Frank tickets. It's sold out. It's sold out. And I picked the wrong time to go to Amsterdam or the right time because they are closed on Wednesday for Yom Kippur. Now you imagine someone who is a sympathetic to Holocaust victims and survivors and everything that I was like, God damn it. Why do you have to take the day off for the Jewish holiday? It's the Anne Frank house. Shouldn't, ugh, I, so mad. Because of the very thing, the very thing that caused Hitler to go crazy. This religion is the very reason I can't get into the Anne Frank house because it's closed one of the days I'm there. I'm so upset. Now, I have failed. Now, at 9 a.m. every day, they release 20% of the tickets. So I will try again. However, I don't think they release them online. I think you have to go stand out there. Now, imagine this complaint. I have to stand outside the Anne Frank house and buy tickets. Yeah, Anne Frank had to hide in a fucking attic from the Nazis. You didn't see her bitch about it. 
Maybe I'll write a book from standing outside her house going, I am a white Catholic and I had to stand in the rain because my iPhone reminder didn't remind me. So if anybody knows any tips or tricks, it's going to be too late by the time this comes out because the two days that I'm going to try to go are Tuesday and Wednesday, and this comes out Wednesday. But if anyone knows any tips or tricks, oh, no, I can't go Wednesday. It's Yum Kips. Then let me know. I actually went on StubHub as though I had missed a Metallica concert. Like maybe someone is reselling it on StubHub. Maybe I could sneak in. I don't know. What would Anne Frank do? So if anyone has any tips, let me know. Um, But I I did sign up for like a Holocaust three-hour walking tour where I think I will get a lot out of that. But I just wanted to go in the house. All right. All right. Enough bitching about that. Um, I ended up getting Madonna tickets. I have never seen Madonna in concert, and I am a huge fan, and I don't care what you say. She is my Donald Trump where he said I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and no one would care. That's how I feel about Madonna. I don't care what she does wrong. I don't care what... I don't care. There is... She has changed my life in many ways over the years. While I may disagree with some things here and there that she does, and I'm not even talking big ticket items. I'm just talking about butt implants. Now, like her selfie face. That's it. I mean... I'm not even going to get into any political or politically incorrect things she might do. I don't care about that. I'm bummed at the butt implants because I just want some information. You know, I just want some information from Madonna. And this is this is from someone who danced her whole life and, and, and likes to, you know, keep a keep a workout centered body is I've noticed Madonna getting, you know, a normal weight is what I will say. But when it is on a body that used to be like blonde ambition tore thin like Madonna, I go, so if I work out all the time and eat right, will I still end up at 60, what I call like a normal weight? I mean, I'm a normal weight now. I'm not underweight by any means. But what I'm saying is she she calls herself this. I feel, see, I can't say anything anymore. Everyone gets offended. I'm kidding. But I, I, I I'm just talking from a body dysmorphia place, which is a real thing. And I have it is you, there, not to the point of anorexia, but there is no world where unless I'm this very certain weight and I can see it when it's there, I go, oh, I like the way I look. Everything else I don't like. You never convince me because it's body dysmorphia. It's not up to you to get into my crazy head. But I see Madonna at a weight that I go, I don't know if that would be her ideal weight. It's not too big at all, but it might be too big for Madonna. And I want to call her and go, did you gain the weight on purpose? Because you're like, I'm in the next phase of my life. You'll get here too and you won't care. I used to have body dysmorphia and now I don't. Or is she like, what happened? I lift weights four hours a day and, you know, I'm still like, you know what I'm saying. So I just want to know. She's not giving me any information. The butt implants I'm confused about. Was she doing it to stay young, stay relevant? Is it because the butt sags and, and if you put implants in, like there's less sag? I don't understand. I don't get it. Or was she like, everything's getting bigger, so let's add butt implants? I don't know what's happening. Um, these are the only things that I sit and think about when I think about Madonna. I feel crazy talking about this, by the way. So anyway, I got, I've never seen her. I'm like, you got to understand, like the height of when I would have seen her blonde ambition. I didn't have a car. 
I was in high school. I would have had to go with a friend. The tickets are expensive. We didn't have any money. I don't think my mother really wanted me to go. It was in the city. You know, it's like, it's just too much. I'm not going. Then in college, she comes around. Oh, I, I get it. What am I going to spend all this money on that? You know, and then you get older. And oh, I don't really like that album. I'm not going to that concert. Then we were both playing Vegas the same night. I'm sure she regretted it as much as I did that we couldn't go see each other's shows, but I couldn't go to that. And then now she's on. And also, I don't like big stadiums and parking. I know nobody does, but it will keep me from seeing even even my favorite thing. So when she announced this small theater tour, oh, (laughs) I thought that was you. I thought you were like having a breakdown. (laughs) Um, When she announced this, small sorry if you're like what just happened I was talking to producer Mackenzie and wasn't just like yelling out to you guys I thought you guys are having a breakdown um I what was I saying oh so I when she did this little theater tour now you know thousand seats 1500 seats uh that's small for Madonna and so I thought well that would be a fun environment to see her in I don't love the new album but I want to see what she does I know that she'll make it a very artistic show with lots of visuals so I had heard that the tickets were sold out the minute they went on sale and that every ticket's five thousand dollars and blah 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 and I found one on Ticketmaster at the actual venue for 200 ish dollars now should I spend 200 dollars on that no but it is my one time to see her and so I'm going and pretty good seat and it's uh I don't know coming up in November sometimes so That I was excited by. And I think that, I don't know, the ticket gods were like, we'll give you Madonna. You can't get in, Frank. So I feel disrespectful. I feel like one is more important to see than the other, but that's how it shook out. So um, where do we go from here? Where do we go? Well, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this, people. I am loving still our sponsor, Everlane. I am still wearing all their clothes. I've got the work pant. I've got, I just bought one of their um, coats. It's like this kind of oversized camel colored coat. It's a wool coat. It's great for the type of travel I do where you might be somewhere that's 50 degrees. It's not quite a winter coat. It's not quite just walk around in a jean jacket. My entire wardrobe on this tour except on stage, and that's nothing to do with Everlane. I just wear more funky, is all Everlane. And I'm so glad that I found, I'm so glad that I found this store. Um, I shop online there, everlane.com slash fun, E-V-E-R-L-A-N-E.com slash fun. You're going to get free shipping on your first order. Here's the deal. Would you buy $50 for a t-shirt if you knew it only cost $7 to make? I wouldn't. And with Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes. They make premium essentials using the finest materials, like premium sustainable silks, Japanese denim made at the world's cleanest denim factory, Italian-made leather shoes, outerwear made from recycled water bottles, perfectly fit Oxford shirts. And you're not going to pay traditional markups. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why, so they tell you their real costs. And they are radically transparent about every step in the process, from the materials they use 
to the ethical factories they work with. No matter your style or preference, Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer because Everlane sells directly to you. Their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Versatile, simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. Yeah, so I have a lot of their t-shirts. I have their silk camisoles. I have their cashmere sweaters. I have one black v-neck. I have one gray turtleneck. I've got their cotton button-down shirts, black and white. I've got their pants. I mean, the whole shebang, you guys. Now, you can check out their personalized collection at everlane.com slash fun. Plus, get free shipping on your first order. You're going to look classy and rich in these clothings. In these clothings. There you go. That's everlane.com slash fun. Woo! Now, as long as you're shopping online, do you want to save some money or don't you? Why wouldn't you save some money? Are you shopping on Amazon, Macy's, J. Crew, Sephora, Target? Yeah, you are. You know you are. That's all you're doing at work right now. Right now, you're on Target and you know it. Here's what you're going to do. You need to get this thing called Honey. I did. Joinhoney.com slash fun. The worst thing is when you buy something online and then you're like, I could have gotten it for less. It's worse than you ask for directions and people start saying east, west, and you're like, left or right? I'll draw you a map. I can't read maps. It's a whole learning disability thing. I Please, I don't want to get into it right now. I'm late. It, point. Just point. That feeling. That's how I feel when I buy something online. I find out I could have gotten it for less. Not to mention, once that happens, you're like, well, how many other places am I overpaying? Luckily... There's Honey, the free browser extension that saves you time and money when shopping online. Honey simply scans the internet for coupon codes and other discounts while you're shopping, so you don't have to do crap. Then, like magic, it automatically applies the one with the biggest savings to your cart at checkout. It knows about every coupon code, code sale, or discount at over 20,000 sites, again, like Amazon, Macy's, J. Crew, Domino's, Sephora, Target, and more. Just shop like normal. Honey finds you savings, and it feels amazing. Like you're gliding your scissors through wrapping paper. Amazing. Listen, I have saved money, honey. I have saved money, honey, when I've shopped on Amazon.com. And here's the deal. They found 10 million users over a billion dollar in savings. Billion dollars. Why? Why am I not using, like, proper English? I saved a billion dollar. But listen, there's really no reason not to use Honey. It's free. And it installs in your computer in just two clicks. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash fun. That is joinhoney.com slash fun. All right. Let's get, let's get it started. Okay. So. Let's just get something out of the fucking way. I canceled my gigs in London. Everybody hates me everybody's angry. I am not going to go into 50,000 more apologies, but I am going to talk about, whew, last week's episode was about anxiety. My anxiety this week has been through the roof. It has been so bad. I was in the fetal position sobbing for an hour. Now you go, I didn't mind to cancel the gigs then. And I have realized how gaslighting people can be. And I am taking a new, I'm, I'm turning over a new leaf. So here's what happened. And this might not be a good reason for anybody. I had an audition. Now, I audition all the time, maybe 40 times a year, sometimes for date, what they call guest star roles. So it'd be like, oh, you're going to play a shopkeeper 
on this episode of uh, Cheers, which isn't on the air anymore. Maybe that's why I'm not landing these parts. I'm auditioning for, no, but uh, let's say um, a million little things. Ironically, I went in for an audition for them. The people that cast that show are fans of mine. They're great. I go to the audition. I had just come from a scary breast cancer-ish appointment. It was, um, I had to get this one area of my boob like triple double ultrasounded because they had found something, but they find something there every year because it's scar tissue from an operation I had where I had a lump removed 20 years ago. And they're always like, do you have the paperwork from that operation? I'm like, it was 19, it was like 2001. I don't have anything from 2001. I don't even have the same teeth from 2001. So anyway, they couldn't like compare it with anything. So I have to do all this stuff. And it was this, I think I talked about it on the podcast. It was like a little bit of a maddening moment where I was like, why won't you guys tell me if it's not cancer? You should say it right now if it's not. And then it wasn't. And I go to this audition. I love the show A Million Little Things, by the way. And I go, and, and so one of the big plots of the show is that this woman has breast cancer and, and is a survivor and there's like a survivor group. So I was auditioning for one of the roles of people in the survivor group. And the casting director was like, no, you're a breast cancer survivor, right? And I was like, no. And they're like, oh, sorry, I thought you were for some reason. Now, I don't know where that came from. Maybe, you know, they saw my Instagram stories where I was like, check your breasts, ladies. I always story it every year. I, I don't know where. But she goes, doesn't matter. You don't have to be. <laughs> and I knew in my head at that moment, I absolutely have to be. I think that's what they wanted for this part. And so because I'm, I never had breast cancer, uh, I didn't get the role. And I found out later through my agent, like they did want to go. Now, I don't know if I'm supposed to say any of this out loud. I'm sure it's fine. But so I'm just saying go to little things all the time. Right. And then there's some auditions where you like last year, I went all the way up to screen test. It was between me and another woman. And spoiler, the other woman got it. And it was a pilot that was filmed, but it didn't go further than the pilot. And it was Tom Lennon playing like a politically incorrect weatherman and I'm his wife. And it was very funny. And it wasn't that kind of wife that just like rolls her eyes and she's not funny at all. It was cool. And it was very like banter. And I happened to be home for a week off of Mrs. Maisel. And my agent sent me the thing. And, you know, I said, well, I'll go in. And I go in and I audition. I couldn't believe how well it went. And then it like went to the next level. And then they called me back and I was like, it's a specific casting director who's a real tough cookie. He is known to be kind of tough. Like if you're five minutes late, that's not cool. You know, don't memorize your lines. That's not cool. So I made sure to be on the up and up and we really hit it off. And so he calls me in for a lot of things. Now, didn't get that role, but it was the closest I ever got. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but I I am trying to tour less because it is not financially sustainable. I lost half my income this year on tour due to ticket sales not being huge. Now, am I complaining? Fuck no. It's just that I need a full-time job. And then let's say all the cities I went to this year that like didn't sell gangbusters. And some really did. Some cities I cleaned up. And some cities were lower. That's all good. And it shifts every year. Like Pittsburgh this year might have been like, ooh. And then I'll go back next year and be like 50,000 people there. So you just never know. But that's why it's not for someone my age who's like really trying to settle down. It's not a great, um, you know, like financial plan to be like, oh, I'm just going to tour. Unless you're really, really hitting big numbers like an Ali Wong, Chelsea Handler, 
uh, John Mulaney, you know, unless you're really like, no, no, no. Every time I put tickets on sale, it's 2000 seat theater and they sell out like, well, of course you can live on that money. Um, but my touring model is not quite. So I, I did a lot of tweaking this year. I was like, oh, you know what? Actually, there was a day when comedy clubs were a little more like rough and tumble and like dumb people and like, what's comedy? I didn't always do well in those, or, you know, uh, sales wise and also like laughs wise. But I worked out both of my specials at comedy clubs, 11 p.m., Dallas, you know, late show, homophobic guys in cowboy hats, arms crossed. They loved me by the end. You know, I can I can work a club. However, these days, even just three years later, clubs are attracting like nicer people and people who aren't there to be combative or heckle or do shots. And so I'm realizing, oh, wait, I sell actually pretty well at clubs and clubs. They pay your travel and they pay your hotel and they have their own built in publicity. So you don't have to hire a publicist. And so you save a lot of money and then you just get to keep your earnings and then obviously taxes and agent managers. So it's a better business model for me. Um right now. So, okay, great. I learned, you know, this is just a little inside touring. But what I learned is, yeah, you know, it's better for me to have um, a writing job, a steady gig, any kind of steady gig, and then I can tour on the side for fun. And that way, if I have a bad city where just for some reason it didn't line up, the people could come or like, you know, I do Nashville. They're like, Queen's playing tonight. It's the biggest festival of the year. And no one does anything but that. I'm like, Arr-r-r. you know, you don't know that when you book it, right? So it's better to just have a little backup. So anywho, uh, it's been a really hard year. I haven't been able to get a writing job. I haven't been able to book any acting work. And usually every year I get things thrown at me. I get a writing job. I get acting work. You know, like I did a few lines in that Reese Witherspoon movie, Home Again. I didn't audition. Nancy Myers called me, called my agent and went, bring Jen in my office. She's funny. And I was just one of those things. Like she's the biggest, you know, like one of the biggest female directors ever. Any movie you've seen where there's a gorgeous cheese plate and Diane Keaton, that is a Nancy Myers movie. And, uh, sorry, that's my phone. That's my phone alerting me about something that, that I don't need to be alerted about. I know that my drive home is coming up because I'm out. I'm not home. If the phone could have fucking alerted me about Anne Frank's house, Tickets. Anyway, so I'm going to Nancy's office. She's like, I love you. Here's the part. That's shit like that. This year has been utterly terrifying. I've literally thought I might have to move back home. I even wrote a pilot pitch about it and pitched it to every network. Every year I sell a script to a network. This year they all said no. It has been nonstop rejection. I'm unable to get it. Like, it's just now. Is it going to be like that forever? I don't think so. I think it's just some weird thing, and I am having a hyper vigilant, terrifying reaction to it. So, when I get an audition and I audition for something, it is a big deal to take it. Why? Literally because when it airs, I'm going to get famous? No. Does it pay a lot of money? No. Uh, to do like a guest star on a TV show? Like, no. No, not life changing money. Pay half a month of your bills. Absolutely not. Is it good to just say yes to something energetically because that's the direction you're trying to go in? Yes. There's been so many years where I'm running off to Europe and I'm running off to Australia and doing all these gigs and people are back home taking work. And I didn't really see that, you know, it's not sustainable to try to make a living being like an international touring comic unless, again, you're very, very famous. So the London gig was always going to be kind of a break even gig for me. 
because the travel expenses are not included and the hotel's not included. And that's not bad or good. It just that's the way the deal is. Many stand up deals are like that again, as I just said. And I was like, well, I'm going to lose money on this, but I could make it up if the shows all sell out. Now, so far, the shows hadn't sold out. I had sold um, some tickets each night, but certainly was very worried about ticket sales. Um, so that's not why I canceled at all, at all, at all dot com. I know that there's a recession going on. Brexit, things are crazy. People are more last minute ticket buyers. Like, I totally understood that. But I auditioned for a role on a little on a TV show um, through that casting director that I've worked with before. And I just I got the role and I got it, you know, not really. I knew there was a sort of a risk with the dates, but my agent was like, you should take this risk. And I was like, you're right. We thought worst case scenario, the filming would be on September 30th. And then I would miss like the first two nights of my London shows, but we'd put everyone, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd still have four nights of the run. When I found out that the acting role is going to be filmed October 4th and 5th, there was no way I was going to be able to get to London for my run that's between September 30th and October 6th. And then Manchester is the 7th. I would have to fly out on the 6th. I'd land in Manchester like two hours before the show. I just can't do that. Um, so I was like, we're going to have to cancel. And I was like, this is going to suck, but I would like to do this work. Not so I can be seen on TV. I can be seen on TV anytime. I go on David Spade's show. I go here, I go there. I'm going to do another Drunk History. Like, it's not a thrill to be on TV, <laughs> but I never work as an actor really through auditions. And this is the first role I've landed from an audition in maybe, I think the last time was on Dan Harmon's VH1 show and that was 2005. So it's been 14 years. So I was like, you know what? I'm doing it. I'm putting my energy where I want to be more of. And I know I fucked over everybody. So usually what happens is when you cancel a gig, um, if you're within 30 days, if it's if it's 30 days out, then you're fine. If it's under 30 days, then you're fucked. You know, you could risk a relationship with the venue. They could charge you a penalty fee. They could just be like, you're a fucking asshole. You know, whatever. So I have a good relationship with the Soho Theater. I love it there. They're a nonprofit. I've been working with them forever. But at the end of the day, you know, I was willing to pay a penalty fee if they wanted me to. I was whatever anyone needed to do to get through this, we were going to get through it. But because it was such a last minute cancel, like right now, there is no rescheduled date. And uh, hopefully there will be one. But as you can see, I'm pretty gun shy about even thinking about rescheduling. So, you know, it's like my manager helped soothe it over. You know, I, I think the theater was definitely like, oh, my God. And I I wrote an apology to them. But it was it was like, yeah, it was just bad timing. And the reasons to do the show would have been about guilt and codependency and fear. And the reasons to not do it would be I actually want to do this other thing more. And I'm really sorry. Now, I would like to have done both. But this is just what the timing was and when they're filming it. I know there's a world where I can always go back to London and perform. There's not always a world where on this very day I get to film this part and do this thing. So that's what it is. Um, and also, it, it's just good to be around people I've known for a long time that write on the show and I want writing. Like, it's just the, it's just it's an it's, I call it an energy dump. I needed to dump my energy over here. And um, people were really upset. And I could not believe, like I've canceled shows last minute, but it was from illness, like once in Montreal and once in Pittsburgh. But I was like, I was in the hospital for exhaustion in Montreal and dehydration. 
And that actually made the rest of my shows sell out. And then Pittsburgh, I had a kidney infection and I wasn't able to reschedule for another year, but everyone got their money back. But in London, the, the reason people were angry and they got their money back was some people bought train tickets that weren't refundable. And so I was, I over Twitter and Instagram DM and then my direct email, which I accidentally left. It was the I seem funny in Londres. When I, I wrote like a personal letter to all the subscribers saying, I'm really sorry. The theater wrote a letter. I made videos apologizing. People called me a cunt, elitist, a rich person. This cost me thousands of dollars to cancel in non-refundable stuff. Um, they were like, you think you're so great. You don't think about us. You fucked your fans over. And some of these people hadn't even bought tickets yet. They were just piling on. And I was like, oh, my God, if I were a teenager with the anxiety that I have, I absolutely probably would not have fared well on the Internet. I, I, I would have been some kind of cold case about like someone who just loses their mind or jumps off a cliff because the hatred was so intense. It just brought up every issue I've ever had of like inadequacy, codependency, just like feeling like I don't deserve to make choices and I'm a bad person. And because I did this, it's going to taint another job interview I had this week and I'm bad and there's punishment coming. I mean, it was insane. Now, I don't have to take all that on, but I'm a human and that's what happens. Like my stuff gets kicked up. And so I tried to even be honest with some people like, hey, my stuff's getting kicked up and I'm really sorry if I was rich, I'd send you all the money for the train tickets. And they doubled down. And it was like being gaslit every day. And I was just crying for like a day. And it really shouldn't be like that. And, and part of that, I take responsibility for my own reaction. But my point is, it fucking sucked. And so that's what's going on with that. Um, I was able, of course, schedule-wise to keep my Amsterdam and Oslo gigs, as we've talked about. I should be in Amsterdam right now, and Oslo is coming up on the 13th. So, you know, but but what I realized was somebody said to me, well, Jen, I asked you, do you ever come to Scotland? And you said, no, you should take a trip to London. So they're like, we bought plane tickets and hotels. And I'm like, I hate to say this, and it's like taken me a lot as a grown woman to say this, but that's not my responsibility. Like, we refunded your ticket, but I... I would not book travel unless you saw my butt land on the plane and I'm Instagram stories. I'm here in London and you want to find some last minute travel, you know, like, and that's the problem with being too close to your fans. That's the problem with me answering DMs and tweeting back and answering comments on Instagram is you feel like this person has just said to you. And, and the thing is, I don't remember saying that. I don't remember that comment. I don't remember that interaction. I do hundreds of these a week. And so it's like, ooh, you know, it feels personal. When someone goes, well, make a trip. I mean, that's what I'm always going to say. If someone goes, you ever come to Kentucky? I go, not yet. But if you see me in uh, Oklahoma City and that's close enough, make a trip. I'm always just going to say that. So, you know, I don't think the responsibility is on me to not say it per se, but it's definitely not my responsibility that people actually booked a trip. And I hate to say that that sounds cold as shit, but it's, it's just not. Now, the second thing is I realized my part in this is being so close with my fans that they feel a personal thing between me. And that's never good because it's not a real relationship. And so if I fuck up, unlike a real relationship, I am the enemy and they will turn. And so even if you think, no, no, I would never do that. I can't take that risk. Does that make sense? So I will no longer be doing any kind of commenting on if people like come here, come there. I don't tell them book a trip. I will not respond back with here's my performing dates like there is a wall and if you want to get out of like this podcast I feel is very one-on-one -on -one, but it, 
if I actually communicate one-on-one with people, they have something to throw back at me. So it's not happening anymore. And I think actually it's a healthy thing. It's not a punishment to anyone. It's just like, oh, wow. Like I've been living my life a certain way. And I think I could stand to have a little more mystery and a little more distance and some boundaries. My boundaries weren't good. So that's my part, as we say in the self-help community. What was my part in that? That's my part. So there you go. I apologize for not being in London. Now, my parents had booked a trip to Las Vegas September 30th through October 6th. And I was like, what's wrong with you idiots? I'm going to be in London then. And they were like, oh, I don't know. Your father gets on the computer, starts booking tickets. I didn't know. So when the London thing was canceled, again, I couldn't have flown to London on the 30th and come back for the 3rd and then taped the TV show and then flown back to Amsterdam. I couldn't have done that. And also, like, when you film a TV show, they're like, your working dates are the 4th and 5th, but it might be the 3rd or the 2nd. Just hold that whole week. Like, it's never happening that. But Vegas is 45 minutes away and you get your call time the night before. So I knew nothing was going to happen. Um so I flew over to see my parents. So I didn't do any great Instagram stories because I didn't want people in London to be like, is that why you canceled to go to Vegas with your parents? It wasn't. But I'll keep it brief about our trip. But it was fun. And <laughs> when I worked on Chelsea lately, we would vacation a lot. And sometimes we would go into Chelsea's lifestyle. So we'd go to Cabo or we'd go to Palm Springs or we'd go to Vegas. And there's this whole... I talked about this on episodes from 2014. There's this whole culture of like sitting by the pool, DJs, loud music, black eyed peas, like that kind of behavior, drinking. And I started to feel like I was getting dumber. I was like, what is this party lifestyle? And I said to my friend, Chris Brangela, if I hear another fucking black eyed peas song and I have to act like I haven't read a goddamn book and he loves to quote that back to me. And so I ran for New York that year after the show wrapped and Chelsea's show was over. I went to New York for a month in December to be cold and to finish writing a book and to just not feel like my brain cells were falling out of my head. So I haven't really done that lifestyle a lot recently, except this year. I was like, I do have a pool at my building. I should use it. And um, and my friend Sarah has a pool and I went over and like we had drinks by her pool one day and I was like, I don't do this enough. And she was like, I know you're not any fun anymore. But I've been so stressed out this year about the work stuff, you guys. That's why the London thing fucking killed me. And to be called rich is just so hilarious. Like, it's not true. <laughs> so anyway, I um, I go to Vegas. I see my parents. I get there. I'm cranky as shit. We go to dinner. I'm just like, nah. My dad gives me some money. He's like, go gamble. And then he's like micromanaging the way I'm gambling. I'm like, I want to play the Sex in the City machine. He's like, you're losing $5 a thing. I'm like, just leave me alone. I was like on teenaging out because I was going through all this like anxiety from canceling London and so I went to bed at nine because that's what a fun person does in Vegas my parents are like okay they're 81 they're like bye loser so then in the morning we went and sat by the pool and the pool was delicious because they were just playing like quiet easy listening 70s music um and the pool was empty because it was morning and like I asked the lifeguard he's like yeah later in the day it gets more like clubby but my mom was there she's got her bathing suit and her little like cute shirt like tied around her waist and I go she goes where's your bathing suit I go I didn't bring a bathing suit I'm in like jeans leather boots I'm like Justin throwing it and my mom's like Jen Aniston like come on babe why aren't we at the beach and he's like I'm a deep New Yorker that's just like what I've envisioned their relationship from reading gossip magazines so my mom goes if I had your figure I would pack a bikini everywhere I went it takes up no room in your suitcase you need to have some fun in your life oh my god 
So she was like, put the computer down because I have a to-do list. I have 75 things on my to-do list right now because I run all my own businesses, like the merch and the podcast and writing a pitch and then the tour stuff. Like I don't have an assistant. I need three. And so I'm I'm never not doing something. And I was just starting to tweak out. And I had a stomach thing for four days. My mom was like, that's anxiety. And I was like, I guess you're right. So you know that song, I'm up all night to get lucky, whatever that is, Bruno Mars, that was playing at the pool. My mom started dancing and she was like, go buy a bathing suit. So I have a cute video of her dancing, but I didn't post it because I want to make anyone mad. So I bought a bathing suit. It didn't really fit. It was cut in weird places that was like, if I wanted my boob to be about to fall out on the side, um, it was a great option. But I swam. It was good. Uh, it was great. I, I relaxed and I was like, I need an hour with my computer to do work. So we went to the Players Club where you get a free glass of wine if you're a high roller, which I'm not, but I just went in on my parents' room key and I acted like I was staying in their room. <laughs> and I had my glass of wine while I did work and my mom sat next to me and I just, I entertained her like she was a baby. She just kind of wanted to sit next to me and I was like, oh my God, here's this funny thing. And I, she loves John Lennon. So I, I played her. I'm I'm a huge fan of Conan's podcast and he did this thing where Dana Carvey did six episodes and Dana Carvey does Paul McCartney answering questions from John Lennon who's in heaven about what's going on and Conan played John Lennon. He's like, what's going on down there, Paul? And he's like, well, you know, we got the orange man's the president, you know. And he's like, what's an orange man? Anyway, it was cracking me up. So I, I put my earbuds in my mom's ears. I gave her my phone. And then she was like, who's this Sebastian Maniscalco guy? And I think he's fucking hilarious. I actually really look up to him. And um, I I played her his bit about people going to Vegas with a cooler. So I kept her entertained. I did some work. We all had some fun. So there you go. Now, I've got, I'm not going to read that article. We're not going to have time to get to it. I'll do it next week. I've got three quick things. Do I have like six minutes? You're at 41 minutes right now. But I mean like in terms of time on the... In this room, yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. We're good? Okay. All right, maybe I'll do like 10 more minutes. Feel free to keep that in. That's a behind the scenes. All right, here we go. Um, So this girl kept DMing me on Instagram. She wanted to get coffee when I was in London. Now, I don't know her, but it was funny because she DM'd me like days after it was canceled. So that let me know that she hadn't bought advance tickets, which is fine. But she would have got a letter from the theater that she's not on my newsletter because I sent on a letter and that she hadn't watched any of my social media. But she's like, I'm your biggest fan, blah, blah, blah. Well, you're kind of not. And she's like, I'm 24. I'm confused. I just don't want to do with my life. I want to have coffee. And it's like, I cannot help anyone with that because it doesn't get less confusing. So here's my blanket advice to anyone who thinks that they should write someone to get coffee. This is big sister tough love. When you're writing someone from a generation that did not have email, Instagram, direct message, you have no idea the bubble you live in where you think people are accessible and that that is an acceptable thing to do. That comes off shockingly crazy to someone my age. I truly cannot speak for a 30-year-old. I don't know how that would come off to them or a 25-year-old. I don't know. To me, it's like, are you nuts? I go back to my same story. Like I have uh, Tourette's. I went up to Noah McDonald in 1998 and I expected him to help me. And he goes, I don't know, do comedy if you want to do it. That was his answer. 
Now, I don't know what this girl is confused about, but she's 24. She says no one understands her. Here's the deal. None of us ever feel understood. A lot of times people do understand us and they're saying things we don't want to hear. So we think they don't understand us. But I'll tell you one person who truly doesn't understand you is someone that doesn't know you. I may present you may feel you know me, and that's great. And I bet I do understand you because I understand all humans just like you understand all humans. There are five basic emotions. Don't tweet me. What are they? You know what I'm saying. We're, none of us are unique. Now, here's the thing that we say in the self-help community. My friend is an AA. She always tells me this great expression. A lot of times when people are like, no, but, no, but, no, but, no, but, they're trying to be terminally unique. That won't help me. That won't help me. That won't help me. Well, if you keep turning down the help, and the experience of other people, then you're saying you're too unique for their advice. Well, it could kill you if, if it's something like AA. Well, that's not going to work. So terminally unique is like, I can sense when someone feels terminally unique. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person or you're a narcissist, nothing like that. But I can just sense where they just want permission to go for their dreams. And part of going for your dreams is failing. I have made so many bad decisions, and it was part of my learning. So if something is driving you crazy and you must go for it, then go for it. As you get older, you will learn the difference between an instinct, a gnawing feeling and a knowing, and an irrational thing that you just felt like doing without looking at the consequences. You will, you will experience all three things. And sometimes in the moment, you won't know which one it is until you do it and you see how it feels after. So I'm telling you all, everyone writing to me, my parents say that just do it. Do it and don't know how to do it while you're doing it. That's all I did. I can't go back and go, oh, well, here's what I would have done. I still am that same person in my 20s who made big leaps and made decisions. And I learned from it, but I didn't learn anything that I could tell you so that you don't do the same mistakes. I learned that mistakes are made and that makes it part of the journey. I learned that what I learned from it was not what I thought I was going to learn from it. So I am going to give everyone permission to go for their dreams. I'm going to give everyone permission to learn from going for their dreams and changing their mind halfway through. I'm going to give everyone permission to, I don't know. That's all you want is permission. You want to hear it from me because you've decided that you'll do what I say. And that is very dangerous. Do not solely look up to people. You, you might, I have specific, like there's some people I look up to. You go, really? You, looked up, you look up to them? I go, in one specific area. So if I could put a composite of all types of people together, like Howard Stern, I really look up to. All areas of Howard Stern? Fuck no. I hate the way he sounds like he is about traveling or this. Not, I'm not interested in being as closed off as him about that. But that's not where I admire him. You know, Joan Rivers. Well, I like everything she did? No. But I admired this thing over here. Oprah. Do I admire everything? No. It. I pick and choose as I go through life and I go, who do I want to be with my finances? Who do I want to be as a performer? Who do I want to be here? There's different people along the way that I went, oh, I can get something from them. So you just got to take a little from everyone. And, and it has to be practical things. You know, don't base your opinion on someone based on some image they're giving off, but really practical things where they've said, I did this. And you go, oh, I, I can see where you would. Oh, OK, I get it. You know, I worked hard. I got up at 5 a.m. I did this. Oh, I could do that. So People understand you more than you know, everybody out there who says no one understands me. Be careful about that attitude. And so this is the big sister advice that you are getting. I don't think you would have had any more fun in person. And the fact there's something still very sweet and young about someone who doesn't realize that someone on tour who's, you know, I put myself down a lot. I know I'm not famous like Madonna walking down the street, but I'm a well-known, respected comic in my field. And 
I don't have time to meet with strangers on tour and I don't want to make the time because that's giving of myself in ways that I need to protect myself. Like if you do three hours of press a day and then you go do your show and you do a meet and greet, that's enough. I can't give any more. I have to take care of myself physically, mentally. I have a lot of other work to do. It's, it doesn't interest me to make myself that available to people. It's actually, it seems kind of insane. And so when you're young enough that you don't even understand that, then you're not going to get anything figured out before you need to take some leap. You can't. The life, I don't, I, I, I literally want a breakdown demographically of who raised people in their 20s because they fucking failed you guys. I don't understand how each generation, the people above them, like still just keep failing everybody. And I think it's so much easier for people without kids to see it from the outside. Anyway, so that's my big sister advice. Now, everyone keeps writing me, how do I get into comedy? This one guy wrote, I'm sure you've answered this before. How do you get into comedy? Do not direct message people that. Because here's the deal. I got into comedy when 1998, when there was barely any comedy left. It was the end of the comedy boom. You were on, Johnny Carson was still on the air. Comedians were still on Johnny Carson. I didn't have cable TV I didn't know that the alternative comedy movement had started. That had started in New York. I was in Boston. I didn't know it existed until a year later. A New York Times article made its way into Boston. Like physically, someone handed me a newspaper because they had gone to New York and picked up a New York Times, read this article, kept it. And when they saw me again a month later, handed it to me. Do you understand? Like that was our Internet. I was looking through the back of the um, Boston Phoenix, which is like a, a weekly newspaper, the Alternative Weekly looking for the words open mic. I had somehow learned those words. And I went and I couldn't find one. So I joined an improv group and I thought I want to do stand-up. I went to every club. They said either women aren't funny or they said we don't have open mics here for beginners. The scene in Boston is over. I also wanted to be some kind of actor or whatever. So I would go on auditions. And there was an audition to host a game show. Now, I don't even remember if this was a national audition. I have a feeling it was, like almost like an American Idol where they go to each city to scout people. And so I got up on stage at a comedy club. It was at the Boston Comedy Connection, which is no longer there. And the audition was in the afternoon, and I asked my boss if I could take an extra long lunch hour, and I went to the audition, and I stood on stage, and you had to say one minute. You had to say what you do for a living and why you don't like it. And I worked at Boston Ballet and I said, I sell tickets for a living so people can watch other people on stage. And I don't like it because I want to be on stage. That's all I said. Thank you. And I sat back down and I met who is now my dear friend, Eugene Merman. And he said, are you a stand-up comedian? And I said, yes, I lied. And he handed me a flyer and he said, I run a booked open mic. And I didn't know what the fuck that was. I was like, of course. And he said, it's 11 p.m. on Thursday night. You can come do it. I was like, oh, my God, I got my first five minutes of stage time and I didn't have an act and I had written jokes. I thought they were edgy. I remember what the jokes were. And if you know my material now, you'll go, oh, I see what Jen means that you really can't go on stage. You have to just go on stage and you can't wait to become who you are because you don't become who you are without going on stage. I mean, if you're a comic. You don't become who you are without going on stage and failing and trying and seeing how it feels. You might get up there and go, oh, I actually hate how this feels. I don't want to do it. And then you're done. You know, class dismissed. I wrote jokes like, I'm super feminine. I I wear nail polish, but it gets messed up because I pick my nose right after. That's what I wrote. I thought that was edgy. I thought it was like Roseanne Barr. I literally thought that was like amazing. 
I did Nancy Reagan jokes. She hadn't been first lady in 12 years. Um, she had a thing, just say no to drugs. And I, my act was just say maybe because then you'll still look cool. It, it was not, I didn't know who I was. And I wouldn't know who I was for a long time. This summer, I just perfected a new hour I'm working on where I'm like, oh, I think this is finally who I am. It keeps changing. So when people say, how'd you get your start in comedy? I don't know what they're asking. How did I begin? I got went to an open mic. So I called Eugene. His number was on the flyer because that no email back then. I mean, maybe there was email, but there's no, you know, like go to my website. 1997. I call him up on his landline. I go, I'm not really a comic. I, I can't go to the open mic. He goes, it's an open mic. You don't have to be a real comic. I was like, oh, you said it was booked. He's like, it just means that you don't sign up there. I tell the people to come and go, okay. So I come, I bring my jokes that I typed up on my word processor. I drove my parents' car because I was living with them. And I got on stage and something in my gut said, don't do those jokes you wrote. Now, I never would have had the instinct to not do those jokes had I not literally heard, Jen Kirkman's next. And I sat on stage. That was the moment when I went, these these jokes aren't me. I can't do it. I wouldn't have known that. So all you guys that are sitting home plotting and planning and what, you're not going to know how you feel till you get up there. And I told a story that ended up on my special Just Keep Living about how I lied about losing my virginity at a certain age when it was actually later. And I don't know what the, I don't even know what I said, but it felt vulnerable and real and risky. And that feeling felt right. So that was it. I kept going back. And I just never stopped going to open mics, like even to this day. And I eventually, I moved to New York. I moved to LA. I kept chasing the dream. I wasn't allowed to play clubs when I lived in New York. They just said, no, no, no. Was it sexism? I don't know. Get to LA. I just keep performing, keep performing. I kept getting on stage and getting better and getting to know myself. Then once you're in a scene for a few years, the people around you, you all help each other out. I started writing on Chelsea lately in 2008. That was 11 years after I'd started. And after being on that show, being a regular writer and cast member, it was almost like a mini Saturday Night Live. By 2010, I was on the air once, once a week, either in a sketch or at the round table, and everyone started to know us. And in 2011, almost 14 years after I started, I started getting to headline around the country. So that's how it started for me. Now, no one else is going to have that story. And you're going to have your own story. And it's best to, I don't even think you need to ask anyone. You just need to go to an open mic and meet the other people. And then you guys can become friends and talk about your experience. But I don't think it's very smart for someone in their 20s that never knew not a life without a laptop or a phone to ask a 45-year-old who was on a word processor with a newspaper how to get started. I don't know. There's probably a bet. Maybe there's even a better way to get started now. But I give you permission to start doing comedy. That's how you start. Is you give yourself permission and you know you're not going to be perfect. You're, you're going to want to get it right. You've got to drop that. You're an artist. You're not a, a mechanic, a mathematician. You, you can get it wrong. You're not putting parts on an airplane during a layover. You can get it wrong. You have to. And I would, I mean, podcasts, my God, there was no comedian sitting around talking about doing comedy. That's all there is now. Every podcast, every comedian has a podcast. It blows my mind that somebody doesn't just think, I'll listen to Greg Fitzsimmons podcast or the Jackie and Lori show or Mark Maron and listen to comedians talking about 
comedy and how they got their start, that you can do all the research in the goddamn world, but the one job you don't need to do the research for, this isn't climbing Mount Everest and you've got to read ahead and get a Sherpa. You have to just be a wild wolf loner and get on the goddamn stage. So if you can find an open mic within 20 miles of yourself, then that's how you get your start. That's all I got to say. And I'm going to clip that section and always remember the, the code so I can email that to people when they ask me. And we're going to end on this. I have a listener who has the craziest email about finding her real father by doing one of those fucking DNA tests that she didn't even mean to do this with. And she wants advice. And I wrote her back and said, listen, I have no advice because this has never happened to me. But I imagine that how I would feel is probably how she feels. I feel a little bit 50-50, a little bit, fuck it. Tell the guy that's your real dad that he is. And the other part of me is, don't open that box because reactions are never what we think. When we think, what's the worst case scenario? We've got to factor in. We don't know what the worst case scenario could be when when we're determining someone else's reaction. So I'm 50-50. I don't know what to do, but I'm dying to hear you guys' words of wisdom. And I have a feeling someone in the audience might even have gone through this. So please do email iseemfun at gmail.com as soon as you can. And we'll figure this out together. So dear Jen, please don't read my name. I won't. I won't, Susan. That's not her name. So I recently did a DNA test to find out more about my ethnic background. Found out I'm 90% Italian, which wasn't much of a surprise. But then I clicked on DNA matches. I was beyond stunned to see a friend of the family's name as my biological father. Now, I don't even know how they get that information. Like, how, like, is his DNA somewhere? Like, that's the part I don't understand. And if she wants to write me back and explain how they knew that, I don't get it. The man who raised me, the only dad I have known, passed away a few years ago. We fought a lot growing up, but I never doubted he loved and cared about me. Yes, I've been in therapy. Apparently, my parents had separated for a few months, and that's when my mother had an affair with this man. She said she got back together with my dad shortly after and always thought I was his, meaning her non-biological dad's. Uh, She basically buried the idea of it. I was also born two weeks late, so she thought the conception date was inaccurate. This was the early 80s. I've known this guy as a friend of the family my entire life. I haven't seen him in at least 20 years. We have exchanged Christmas cards, though, and have had sporadic contact. So they haven't seen each other in 20 years, but they've done Christmas cards and sporadic contact. This is a total shock. My family is pretty normal by most standards, not a lot of scandals. My mother isn't wild by any stretch and would have been a soccer mom if I played soccer. The fact that there was never any mention that this could have been a possibility is daunting, and it makes me feel really bad for my dad, who unknowingly raised another man's child. Well, you can't do anything about that. He's dead. So, um, And you know what? Everybody probably knew. You know what I'm saying? Your dad knew. It's probably why you fought sometimes. He was probably like, that's why I'm a real kid, but I can't say anything. I had a beautiful childhood. I'm glad my dad raised me, and I know it takes more than DNA to be a father. But I feel like my mother robbed both of their choices. I'm trying not to take this out on her, but I can't help feeling this way. It's fucked up to think that an entire side of my family isn't really related to me. My grandmother, aunts, uncles. Oh, right, your dad's side, yeah. I'm curious if any of your listeners have dealt with this as well. Do you think reaching out to tell him is a good idea? He's 84, and I'm a grown woman. I don't need parenting, but I'm curious about his family medical history, what his parents looked like, anything noteworthy about the family, just whatever. Again, please don't read my name. Now, my real quick psychoanalysis would be, you say it's for all those other things, but what deep down is underneath it? 
I think it's just to have a moment where it's like, this is my real dad. And if that's it, are you willing to be disappointed if he doesn't care or if he's angry? That's what you have to ask yourself. That would be my only advice. Um, Everyone else, if this has happened to you, oh, dear God, please write in. I I love it. I seem fun at gmail.com. Until next week, keep go easy on the DNA test and have fun.